This week on Plot Points Podcast, Bill Fisher from Quicksilver Software teaches us how to be pirates. Just kidding. Jeff Lyons dissects premise lines without anesthetic, and Toby wonders who in the world bought tickets to those films. This is Plot Points Podcast. This is Mark with Plot Points Podcast. We are missing Mary Claire Anderson Van Kemp. Oh, Princess Van Kempen. I forgot. I have to add that. Uh, but we have two really amazing guests with us. Uh, but my uh, other co-host is here, Toby Walwork. Hello. How you doing? Good, Toby. And um, I have two guys here that are just incredible human beings. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, we're, we're recording at Quicksilver Software which is owned by William Fisher, Bill. Um, and I've known Bill probably 20 years, I guess. Let me tell you a personal story. We There was a time where I didn't have a place for my classes. And his sister was uh, a student of mine. And um, when she found out I was going to, it was because of Learning Tree, it was a horrible, horrible college. Um, but Bill opened his conference room to us for I don't know how many years, and I promised to pay him, and I never did. So uh, I'd give him like 20 bucks every once in a while. So uh, he's owed me ever since. <laughs> ever since. But Bill and I have worked on projects together. Uh, he's in the tech field. He's he's uh, Well, let me read you some of his uh, – this is from his LinkedIn page. He's the president of uh, Quicksilver Software, which is – uh, cutting edge entertainment simulation and training software for commercial and military mm-hmm. applications. But the, the really, the incredible part of this is he was a part of Mattel Electronics. He was an original, uh, software engineer for Mattel Electronics and Television, right? I was the first one hired in their Hawthorne facility. Right. And so you were responsible for what? I mean, what are the, what some of the games? Started out as video game programming, so I did three cartridges for the Mattel and television, uh, first on my own and then the second two with other people, and then moved on to uh, start up and help uh, manage the IBM PC and Apple II development group. So for the benefit of the audience, uh, audience who are under the age of 30, what is a cartridge? Phys- actual physical device with the game on it that you plug into your console because that's how they were sold oh in my God. those days. And they had hardly any storage on them. These giant things that were two to three inches square had less storage on it than, you know, a tiny, tiny uh, one millimeter square of your USB key that you have now. <laughs> you were also, uh, you were educated at UCLA. You yeah. have degrees in um, math and computer science. And then you also graduated magnum cum laude, which yes. is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And you volunteer for IEEE GameSig, which is what? GameSig is uh, a really interesting organization. IEEE is the biggest um, professional services uh, organization in the world. they got about 400,000 members. And uh, they do standards, of course. You've heard of IEEE 1394 right. and stuff like that. Yeah, that's what they do. And one of the other things that we do is we also do outreach and education and and standard setting and stuff like that. And so uh, I've been involved in all that with GameSig. GameSig was founded specifically to promote 
game development skills and to refine the technical skills of students in local universities and high schools. Like Cal State Fullerton. Like and Cal State Fullerton, UC Irvine, Chapman. Bunch of them, yeah. Um, you know, all the, all the local schools, but around the world too. We're, we're actually trying to do an international outreach oh, this wow. year. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Uh, we, we, we've actually had a talk about doing an international tour, uh, but we have a contest every year. Uh, next one's May 1st at, or May, anyway, it's Saturday, like May 3rd or something like that of next year, of this year now. Um, Tell them at the Chapman website. University, www.gamesigshowcase.org. Just right. straight up, all three words run together. And we do a thing where basically kids uh, submit games. Teams, usually 30 to 40 teams every year submit games. The top 10 come to the pre- presentation. They have to uh, pitch their game for five minutes to a panel of video game experts, and then they get grilled for five minutes. So and it's, then like, we, it's like Shark Tank for games. Shark Tank for games, yeah. Okay. Cool, cool. Well, go to the <laughs> We're web. in year seven now. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, I had, I had a little bit of, uh, interaction with that, with, uh, the website and stuff like that. It's a great organization. You're, you're an amazing leader. So, um, well, thanks, Bill. And Bill's going to stick around for a while. I don't know how long. He's a really, 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 really busy guy. Too, too busy for our silliness here. But, but somebody who isn't too busy, busy for our silliness. No, I'm kidding. Is, uh, Jeff Lyons. Jeff is making a return trip. Uh, welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and I'm going to, this was off of your something page. So I'm just going to read it because I can't remember. <laughs> uh, uh, which website did you pick? Uh, Jeff Lyons is a freelance writer, story editor, script and book doctor and has worked in film, television and public industry industries for more than two decades, helping literally thousands of screenwriters and novelists tell better stories. Is that okay? So far. So far. He is a horrible human. Where did I get now? He's an instructor through Stanford uh, University's online writer studio and is a regular guest lecturer throughout the UCLA Extension Writers Program. Jeff's writings on the craft of storytelling can be found in leading industry trade magazines like the Writer's Digest and the Writers and the Writer Magazine. And he has, uh, there were, there were three books listed on Amazon, Anatomy of a Premise Line, which is a great book. I highly recommend Jack Be Dead. That's fiction, right? Yeah. 13 Minutes, which is a short story. Audiobooks coming out this end of this month. Yeah. Did you finish all the, uh, you finished all the audio, Got all the audio recording and stuff? And now, yeah, now it's going to actually go up. Yeah. It's cool. And then you have a new book. Are you want to talk about the new book coming out? Yeah, Rapid Story Development is uh, is a uh, uh, being published by my uh, the same publisher who did Anatomy of a Premise Line, and it's a it's an overall development system u- utilizing something called the Enneagram system. Mm. Um, the Enneagram has been around for a long, 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 long time. Writers have used it for character development for a long time, but I found a connection between story structure and the Enneagram and developed a whole system around it. And this that's what this whole book is about. Well. Do you want to mention the fiction book too? The uh, one you were you were designing the cover for? Oh, that's a, another novella that I'm trying to finish for next uh, next month. Okay, uh, called uh, uh, Terminus Station, which is a sort of a ghost train. It looks good. It looks good. Yeah, it's a pretty weird, twisted tale. As as <laughs> as reflects you personally, which yes. reflects pre- yeah. pretty much all my writing. Yes. All right, all right. Well, uh, thank you guys. First of all, Bill, thank you for allowing us to use your conference room. And uh, uh, Jeff, thanks for driving in and, and uh, sitting in with us. I I'm always appreciative of the effort. And Toby, as always, love you. I I just regret that I don't have any more impressive things to say after we went through these guys' resumes. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, my name is Toby. I have four pairs of shoes. <laughs> well, wait a minute. You just bought a new car. Oh, yeah. New to me, but well, yeah. But, no. you know, but who, who, quick show of hands, who doesn't have a car? 
<laughs> not, not really that. I mean, I'm happy, but it's not that impressive. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful car, so. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what are we watching. If you guys are watching anything that you want to mention, I've been watching. Uh, I watched uh, Thor Ragnarok. I watched um, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and um, but the what I want to talk about is something called Episodes, which is on Netflix. It is. A, I love this show. So the premise is really simple: two uh, very erudite British writers writing a very erudite. Uh, sitcom or, or uh, dramedy in England are tapped to come over to the United States and transfer that that show to a United States market. So the 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 headmaster is an, probably a seventy year old uh, stage actor, very you know well thought of, talks very you know does that kind of Ian McClellan, uh, and they end up with Matt LeBlanc. And I got to tell you, Matt LeBlanc is so funny in this show. The the show is so well written. Their experiences in Hollywood, uh, the two writers, and they're married. Uh, and there's a plot twist after the season, toward the season ending that I didn't see coming. I just, I just, I'm so in love with this show. It's written by David Crane, uh, who was uh, responsible for Friends. And his co-writer was responsible for Mad About You, but I, I can't find his name. Certainly, the show is just fantastic, so I highly recommend it. Yeah, I, I saw that show. That show was um, on Showtime originally, mm. and I believe it's a, a co-production of Showtime and uh, maybe the BBC, but I think it's a UK-US produced show. Uh-uh. And it is really funny that it's two very uh, established American sitcom creators, you right. know, from one from Friends, someone from Mad About You, and they do this very uh, fish-out-of-water, and uh, a lot of times... Movies and stories that are making fun of like the Hollywood system, they sort of fall flat yeah, because it's, it, it's just very cynical. And this is, this is cynical, but it's absurd. Yeah. And, it, and it's actually really fun. And it, and it plays out. I don't know if all the episodes are on Netflix, but they just wrapped it up recently. I think it's four seasons. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it actually wrapped up in a very satisfying way. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a great, I, re, I, I love it. I love it. Uh, you guys watching anything interesting? Uh, yeah. Actually, um, kind of strange. I'm watching a lot of Chinese. Oh, right, stuff for your project because yeah. of this project I'm working on with a Chinese producer, and he's sending me DVDs of films that are big in the China market and stuff that nobody here has seen. Right, like Wolf Warrior Two, and and there's this one that was actually distributed by Disney. You get the whole Disney thing up in the, in the beginning of this. Of this, it's an Indian film called Dangle. Dangle? Dangle. Um, oh, Dangle. Or Dangle, I think. Yeah. About, about, it's based on a true story about these two sisters who are, uh, trained to be, uh, wrestlers by their father who oh, could never I've become, right. who could never become a champion himself for India and at the Commonwealth Games, which is a big deal. <clears throat> and about their story and debate. And it's wonderful. It's the third biggest grossing movie in China. I've heard about it. And I've heard it's it. An, yeah. it, it will be bought by somebody over here and remade. And ruined. No question about it. <laughs> you know, with, you know, with, with very recognizable people. And it's just this wonderful story. So it's really interesting to see the kinds of movies that are not Chinese that are getting a lot of traction in the China market. Mm. And Bill, we had talked. I haven't seen Star Wars yet, which appalled all of you. Um, I just haven't had the time. But uh, you, you just you enjoyed Star Wars, right? Yeah, I did. The, I, the new one, the brand yeah. new one. 
uh, The Last Jedi. I liked, I liked it. And I'll tell you the number one thing that I thought is that it brought back the humor from the first sequence. Uh. To me, the reason why Star Wars four, five, and six worked is because of the sense of humor. You know, you've got Han Solo saying, it's not my fault, you know, or, or, you know, I've got a bad feeling about this, right? And to this day, we remember those simple things. The catchphrases. Because it, you know, and, and then there's the, the great kissing scene with him and Leia, and mm-hmm. then 3PO walks in, and, you know, the, the scruffy looking nerf herder thing. And, it, you know, it was amazingly fun and creative and original in, in, in its day. And it was tremendously funny and it didn't take itself seriously. And I think that that, in my view of any science fiction movie, the number one problem is that they take themselves seriously, mm. really, really well, seriously. They're, they're dealing with some pretty serious themes sometimes. Like, like uh, what's the one with uh, ex machina, you know, and I just watched that yeah. a little while ago. Yeah. Um, it, that was well, we can maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. It was okay, but it was very predictable. Oh, um, really? I actually found it extremely predictable. Huh. So did my wife. Um, but no, with, with Star Wars, that's the real thing that I like about it is that it's lighthearted. It's got a very serious theme, right? You know, the galaxy is imploding and whatever, because that's makes for a good storyline. But the character development is interesting. The people go in different ways. It's you know, Luke is not you know the. He's not Obi Wan Kenobi for sure, and that's good because other, if that if he were, then it would be ridiculously predictable. Mm. Um, so well, I, would, I have several things to to comment on, but that was my really guiding principle here: is that it felt like the the wonderful, spontaneous, funny, you know, with with real characters who really had a chemistry together. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, um- Jeff, did you you've seen Star Wars? Yeah, I did. Did you do you agree with Bill? Um, with a lot of it, yeah. The, the last few Star Wars films were pretty flat for me, mm-hmm. and I pretty much was over the franchise. <laughs> I think and, a lot of people and, were. And this this really reinvigorated a lot. It was there were actually storylines, mm-hmm. and uh, they 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 were the, the actors actually had to act. Mm. Um, oh yeah, and and it was uh, there were some times when it reverted back to the old, you know. You know stuff, but space um, opera, the, the space, yeah, the well, just the battle, just the, right. the noises and the sound effects. <clears throat> it got kind of old, but um, it really, I think, I, I they really were back uh-huh. for me. I was like, I was actually engaged and watched and enjoyed it. Mm. You too, Shelby. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think um, I've given it a lot of thought because I think it was. Uh, it might have even been two episodes ago that I'd seen it, but I wasn't, I knew I enjoyed it, but I wasn't sure if it was good. You know, I kind of wanted to be careful and measured. And I think if, if, uh, if it's very glib and because you haven't seen it, I think the easiest way to say is, uh, Jedis are not that interesting. And the prequels were all about Jedis and how they're stiffy and they can't do what, so, so but true. once, but the last Jedi is about people and how people, yeah. there's really not. Extremely prominent in the late, in the latest edition. Is it? Okay. Yeah. There and, are and some it, very interesting stuff that you've never seen Jedi's do before. That Ray does. Like, oh, how cool is that? Yeah. And I won't say what it is, but there's, no, this, she lifts there's a building scenes. or something. I know. There's, there's two scenes that but you don't know what it means, Mark. No, I don't. I'm just and, being good. And that is why you lose, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> never, never. Um, well, anyway, I'm definitely going to see it. I just haven't had the, the opportunity yet. So, um, 
Yes, Jeff. Did you have? Um, Just, did I, we finish up on what you were watching? I may have jumped the gun. No, there's on that. one other that, I, I, that totally surprised me. That I was just shocked at how much I enjoyed it because I went in expecting to be completely bored. Jumanji. Oh, I heard that was good. Oh, though. Blew my mind. Our how co-host. original yeah. it was, and the way they handled all this stuff, and and every single one of these characters changed. Mm. All these kids. Who go into the game come out of it differently. I mean, it's all very you know superficial, predictable, right. blah blah blah. But the arcs are all there. The humor is there. They did a bang up job with that. Now, the original Jumanji did they were they kids that became adults? No, so that's that no concept. It was, it is was just, new. it was Robin Williams was the, right. the adult, and all the kids were there, and it was all happening in their house. In the house, right? I remember that. Yeah, it was just a game out of control story. Uh, you know? Okay. Yeah, it's uh, Mary Claire um, gave it a real big membership. Well, she was definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, and, and I think we were both dubious just because it it, it didn't. Well, it's The Rock and yeah, Kevin. It, it didn't present as something that was going to be anything more than a Rock movie or a Kevin Hart movie. And you're like, you know, and I like both. I of appreciate them, those for what right, they are exactly. I wanted to ask uh, the guys, what did you think of the way uh, Princess Leia was handled? Carrie Fisher was handled in the new movie. Did you like it? Did you like the way? Things came out. Are you talking about the the CG Star Wars? This, yeah, no. But are you well, talking no, about the the storyline? All line? aspects of it. All oh, aspects yeah. of how she appeared in and was used in the movie. Yeah, I, I obviously being careful, sensitive for spoilers. I was waiting for the elephant in the room to present itself, like, and uh, and I thought there were many chances, many opportunities where she could do that, and it could have some meaning. And uh, but I, it's it's like her best. It's her best. It's the best use of Princess Leia in any of the Star Trek mm. films. Uh, Star Wars I thought films. she was good in the last one too. Yeah, but this is is are a they lot using more. are they using that Uncanny Valley thing? The, is, it, I is there any CGI? I did not detect the Uncanny Valley at all. Huh. I was I was under the impression that there's actually none. All of her stuff had been shot before she died. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it looked all real. It did not look yeah. like uh, the one <laughs> the, scene the, in yeah, the in, end of Rebel One didn't look like that. Yeah, yeah, didn't <laughs> look like exactly. That. It didn't look like that. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what we're writing. I don't know. I know that's not going to... Well, Bill, you can talk about your software, which you're writing if you want, if you uh, want to mention it. Uh, but Jeff, what are you working on? I mean, you, I know the Chinese thing. Is that being written yet or... No, we're, we're still in the outlining uh, development phase. Okay. So are you working um, on... A, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finish this novella. Hmm. <laughs> Which is uh, how far away are you? Uh, I've got, I've got, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a month away, I think, from you know having, oh, having okay. pages. So how many pages uh, prose do you write versus script a day? Like, is it? I know there's that's an impossible question to ask or answer, but is it five pages versus ten? Is it double or half the amount? Or uh, it, it's a it's an irrelevant question to me because okay. I, I just write what I write. I, I don't I don't give myself, and this is maybe a, a bad thing. It is. But I don't, I don't give myself, uh, you know, those sorts of. Well, I mean, I can write, usually when I'm marks. writing a script, I write between 10 and 20 pages a day. And I, I, I go while the juices are flowing and uh-huh. I'm feeling excited about the scenes. Right. And then I always try to end writing on something that's open that I've got right. to go back and finish. That's a great, that's a great technique. That's like leaving the table a little bit hungry. Right. Yeah. Well, pushing away before. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, 
I'm re I'm doing a that um, what I call the millennial rewrite on that one script. I'm still working on that to bring it up to today's. Uh, as Toby so succinctly put it, you're giving them cell phones. Yes, that's one of it. Uh, one of the things, but uh, and then uh, the Revolutionary War script, and then I'm also I came up with an idea I really really love based on two words in an article in Popular Science, which I don't. I, I don't know why I subscribe to this magazine because I don't love it, but it's every once in a while it kicks me in the ass and I think, wow, that's a great concept. So, uh, so that's what I was, that's what I'm working on. Uh, are you working on anything at all, Toby? You've been. No, actually, it's been kind of, well, it's crappy excuses. Um, I've been pretty busy with a couple of things that are work related that. Mm. Really sort of. Are you sat guys back into full steam? Yeah, we've got some, uh, yeah, I mean. The the end of the year was 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 pretty relaxed, and now it's like gearing up for the big push. Mm-hmm. But I've mostly been, uh, you know, and now we are in the dead of winter. It's eighty eighty <laughs> degrees outside, so I've been I've been just watching other things, just because the the it it I don't want to sound pretentious, but the creative part is somewhat being taxed. Mm. Well, you know, that would seem based on what I know about your writing, that would seem like to be almost like right up your alley. Not necessarily that kind of. Um, relationship touchy feely stuff but the idea that you like the 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 smaller you know uh narrative as opposed to the big like i yeah. like to write big explosion movies and you like to write these small the i still love that um that one you worked on with uh the city government yeah i'm not gonna say what but i can't wait for you to finish that so okay oh uh, that's cool yeah i um I think, you know, we, uh, I mean, how much do you write a week, uh, Jeff? Do you, are you working, uh, are you working every day or do you take days off or? Um, that's a, that's a great question. Um, because I, I, I compartmentalize mm-hmm. and when we talk about, you know, the anatomy of a premise line a bit, I can explain a bit more, but I really see a difference between writing and storytelling. Mm. They're two completely different things. They have nothing to do with one another. And, I spend most of my time de- in development, not well, physically writing. Well, let's roll into your anatomy of a pre- premise line. Uh, let's talk about that because that's a great uh, transit. Last last time, Toby was the guy with all the great transitions. It appears that you're the one. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk a little bit. Your your book is called Anatomy of a Premise Line. It's a way of approaching what story development. Okay, so as opposed to sitting down and writing, if I have a mission. <laughs> it is to get a writer before they start writing pages. Okay. Because when a story is going to go off the rails, it always does it first at the level of the idea itself. Right. And what happens is what I call backing into the story. And I, it happens to me. It happens to everybody who writes it, when you don't know what your story is. Um. You write, you write, you write, and this is especially problematic with novelists because they get into hundreds and hundreds of pages, and sometimes screenwriters do that too. And then the wheels come off the cart, and they go, "Okay, well, what happened?" And they, what do they do? What does every, what does everybody at this table do when you, when that happens? Cry. Well, after crying <laughs> comes stamping my feet, and after this, okay. <laughs> I'll cut to the chase. After, stamping, I'm not after the you. crying and the stamping day. of the feet and the slapping of the face, you go back and you look at the breadcrumbs yep. and you start backtracking and you, you do what I call backing into the story. Everyone ends up in the exact same place, mm. the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that's where they have to start the damn rewrite process. But it's actually not rewriting. It's reinventing. This is why I hate NaNoWriMo. This is why I hate... 
Tell the, them what. The tell them what Nanorama is. National Write Novel Writing Month, right. which is this. Just it's this, all over our Facebook page. This our bamboozle wall. thing. I mean, I mean, I understand the idea of it, but it, it plays into the greatest, the number one myth of creative writing, which is right. Just write. That's right. Nobody cares. No, that's don't not true. Don't edit. Don't don't worry about it. Just get that first draft out. All first drafts are shit anyway. Don't worry. Just write. The story will tell itself. Characters will tell. Will write themselves. No. Stories do not write themselves. Characters do not write themselves. You're the writer. You write it all. <laughs> right. You know, there is a, there is a co-creative process with your story and development and all of that. No question about it, but the stories don't write themselves. So what, what's your, what's so, your solution? So what happened was over the years, as I dealt with this issue, uh, cause I've been in development for a long, long time, is I started developing and seeing a pattern in terms of creative process and the mechanics of development itself regardless of format, that developed into this thing called anatomy of a premise line, which is a very mechanical process. But I was very careful to design this so that it's independent of form. It doesn't matter whether you're telling a book or writing a TV show, a movie, a haiku. It doesn't matter. A story is a story is a story. I agree with that 100%. And that's why it doesn't matter whether you're a good writer or not. The, the piece that most writers are weak on is the story piece, mm. the story development piece. And this is what, pe what most most people need help with. So I developed a thing where you 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 basically map out the, what I constitute as the basic structure of any story. And when I tell you the pieces, you'll see that they're common to every story guru's system. Okay, mm -hmm. because because that's not something anyone invented. Mm -hmm. It's it's an archetypal thing. It exists outside of us. Stories. It came from the witch doctor sitting around the campfire. Came, it, it came exactly. It came out of an emergent property of human beings, which is storytelling. Right. I think the very first stories weren't written, weren't drawn, weren't anything. They were they were danced. I mm. think it was movement stories huh. that we actually started with as human beings. That's interesting. 50,000 years ago. Right. Um, but it's always been the same thing. We were tapping into this archetypal structure that right now I think has seven components. That may change over time, but it's what I call character constriction, desire, relationship, resistance, adventure, and change. These pieces... Um, are in every, when you get an idea for a new story, everybody does the same thing. They go, Oh my gosh, I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to take the next two years of my life and I'm going to write this thing. Like, really? Based on what? Mm -hmm. How many good ideas do you have in a month? Why this one? Mm -hmm. It's because there's a part of them that connects to that structure. They see they've got to actually have a story, but it drops in as this, what I call this big ball of information. It's undifferentiated and, what anatomy of a premise line does is gives you a very physical process that you can use to unravel that ball in a systematic way and then use it to actually develop the structure of your story before you start writing. It, 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 writing is a reductive, story development is a reductive process. Mm -hmm. It's about taking away options, not opening up the doors to the floodgates for all options. You'll never get anything written. It's about finding the right choices, not all choices. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That's, I like that's makes what sense. this does. That's what this does. And, well, and in, in, the, in the thousands of people who have used this thing, I've only had a couple who have walked away, you know, saying, no, this doesn't work for me. But it's basically them realizing the story they had wasn't going to work. So I, I would love to sit here and talk about this for hours, but I don't want to give away the information for free. So what, no, no, no. So what I'd rather do is tell people to go buy your book. You also do seminars 
and you have an online teaching, um, right? You do online teaching? Yeah, I, I teach you Stanford. I teach, I teach this basically through Stanford University, uh, through their writing program. I teach my own private classes. You can go to, you know, uh, uh, jefflyonsbooks.com and that's a lion spelled l-y-o-n-s l-y-o-n-s.com yeah. yeah and then uh, you can look at all the different there's some free ebooks out there where i've extracted some parts of the books so you can just you know learn about how to do a moral premise learn you know the basics of character well tell uh, explain that one thing you when you talked to the orange county screenwriters association you gave us one really good tip ah. which was about how to the whistles and bells? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I love that. I still I still tell my students that. It's so it's a it's a killer little test. It's called the whistles and bells test, and and it, what it is, it's a it's a very quick way that you can very quickly figure out whether the idea that you have for a story, regardless again of what format it's going to take, whether or not it's going to have any juice and have any legs. Right. And what can you, you, can you give us a concrete example of that? Like, for instance, the Star Wars, The Last Jedi? Would you be able to? Uh, no, I, no, it takes time. I have to, okay. I have to stop right. and think. People always ask for these kinds of examples, but you got to stop and really think, does it work? Well, does you should fit? have one. Jeff, well, uh, yeah, what the hell? I, I don't. Kind of but a I, I, can, I can, I, but I can explain the test. It's, probably, okay. it's yes, really, it's, it's really it's, simple. It's, it's brilliant. It's really simple and easy. All you do is take your idea. Get rid of all the whistles and bells. Get rid of all the aliens. Get rid of the car chases. Get rid of the alcoholic whatever. <laughs> get rid of all the things that you think you're, make your story special and unique and everyone's going to want to buy Get rid of the grumpy it. grandfather. Get rid of the grumpy grandfather. And then you simply ask the question, what's the story? Hmm. The answer is not, oh, my character goes here and does this and my character goes here and does that. No. Don't get into the details, the minutiae of the story. You always end up getting this gestalt of, oh, this is a story about a guy who has to learn how to love because if he doesn't, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Oh, this is a story about a mother and daughter who learn the meaning of loyalty and because of that, dot, dot, dot. You get a sense almost immediately of the protagonist, the opposition in the, in the story, what the protagonist is going to learn about him or herself at the end. That's when you, when you can get that and it's not just the robots come and invade Earth and mm-hmm. they, got, they got to save people's lives and... That's when you know you've got a story because stories are about us. Stories right. are about something about what it means to be human. Yeah, it's a, it's, we want to follow a character and his journey or her journey, not necessarily the plot. People, people hate this idea of, oh, well, stories have to have, you know, somebody change at the end. There's that great scene, an adaptation where Nick, the Nicolas Cage character complains, why do stories always have to change? Have, have change? Why do people have to change the story? It's such a cliche. Well, tough it's true it's true it's true (laughs) you know uh, i use it as a diagnostic tool more than anything else because what you said basically was if you can't figure out where your story's failing take away all the bells and whistles what is the component what is the basic component of the story and then work from there to build the story and then add the bells and whistles back in which i thought was fantastic that's a great idea it's like duh yeah duh yeah well yeah that's why you're a guru i know you hate that word but no, I don't look at me like that. You are. No, he's not. No, I, I like it. This is the first time I've ever heard the idea. And it's totally resonates. Isn't it? I, I get it. Why that makes the difference. Yes. It's get rid of all the inconsequential things that you think are important that actually don't matter. Right. It's, you know what it is? It's getting rid of the high concept, which is grumpy grand, grandpa. You know, grumpy grandpa is about a guy, but what is the story there? Not what is the, what is the high concept, but what is the story? So, 
the high concept is necessary for the marketing, but not for to telling the story, right? But here's an important, but here's a very important fact thing because I make a distinction between what I call situations and stories. Most of, most of what people write, especially in the movie world, are situations, situations, not stories. And I don't have a value judgment about that. But this test can tell you whether you have a story or a situation. Right. Situation being the problem being solved. The you know the the, 20, the classic example: twenty something kids caught in the cabin in the woods and the monsters. That's why I'm going to eat everybody. The only question is: only questions are. Who's going to die? How bloody is it going to get? No right. one's going to have a big life revelation. No one's going to suddenly come to realize that blah, blah, my father was a bad person. No. Yeah. But realizing you ha- don't have a story doesn't mean you abandon the idea. Right. Maybe you've got a great situation. Right. Great. Know that that's what you've got. And that saves you from coming up with all the other crap you got to do for a drama or, you know, a really deep character thing. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it, it informs you about your writing process. And that's important information to have. Absolutely. And that, that, you still have to have the high concept. You still have to have the marketing tool that's going to sell the script, but you need to solve the story because even a, even the best concept, uh, could be ruined by, uh, a, a flaccid story. I said flaccid, Toby. I'm sorry. It's okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, anyway, so again, tell us where, you know, I mean, we'll put some, we'll put it in the show notes. I'll put it in the show notes, but tell us again where, uh, the an anatomy of the premise line is, of a premise line is available on Amazon. Amazon, uh, um, jefflyonsbooks.com. Jefflyonsbooks.com. Does it's, that link to Amazon basically? It links to Amazon. Okay. It's, it's on all the major book distribution sites at this okay. point. Okay. And then, um, how would, uh, can, is there a way for people to get in touch with you about your, about your classes or your seminars is just through the website? Uh, through the website or, you know, Jeff at storygeeks.com. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I, um, we got a little taste of Jeff, um, through Orange County Screenwriters Association, which is, uh, ocscreenwriters.com. He was there, uh, last year and it was fantastic. I think you got the best response we've, we've had in quite a while. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, well, people still talk about the, your seminars. So, wow. And it wasn't even that long. It was like a, we gave you about an hour and a half all in or right. something like that. And you kicked it, you kicked it. So <laughs> nice, nice job. Thank you. All right. Um, we're going to move on, but before we move on, Oh, Toby's got his copy got, in his backpack. I have my copy of Jeff's book and maybe when we're done, I'll have him sign yeah, something definitely real nice some, in here. Yeah, definitely. So, did you, have you, have you had a chance to read it yet? Yeah, this is, uh, this is, this is a coffee shop reading. Uh, oh, there you go. And uh, Toby goes to parks look, and coffee and it, It's getting a little dog-eared. I mean, <laughs> you should feel good about that, right? I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll just drop it a bunch. My, my, my life is complete. That's like, yeah. uh, that's like black belt. You take your black belt and you rub it against things so it looks like it's old and worn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. oh, all right. Thank you. Um, all right. So um, we're going to move on. Uh, we, I have done some work on Oliver Stone uh, on my writer's focus. But I don't know if I'm going to do it this week or the next podcast, and we may in fact split it into two. It's quite extensive. Uh, when you start to talk about Oliver Stone, you forget how much work the guy has done. I mean, quality, high quality work. Um, and of course, you know, it started with Midnight Express, but even before that. Um, so I don't want to give it short shrift, but we have a lot to cover and we have some great uh, energy here. So I'm, I'm going to probably put it aside for now. Um, I'd like to move into, um, oh, uh, did I tell you I watched The Big Sick too? 
I, I oh, think yeah, I, I think yeah. you mentioned what we're setting up. Yeah, that was – I didn't mention it online, but I, I really enjoyed that too. Um, okay, so – so what we're doing this week, uh, we usually do a this week or this month or this year in film history. Instead, um, we tasked Toby with coming up with a list. We didn't care what the list was. Um, the first one was his favorite popcorns. And we asked, you, could you get a little bit, because he, you know, popcorn movies, that goes together. But um, he came up with a different list. This is, These are uh, 10 reasons why I'm really cool. <laughs> No, we put the kibosh on that, In reverse order. (laughs) No, actually, uh, it was funny. Uh, It's one of those, it's an interesting challenge, because let's just come up with a list of things that might be interesting to discuss. And the internet's full of lists, and it's like, well, I was trying to find something where we could, you know, sink our teeth into it. I was curious about films that open in January, uh, and and how often do they turn into big box office films, or how often do they turn into Academy Award winning films? Now, why film? Why would that be a thing? Why would the films in January opening be a thing? Well, that's why I was just curious to see because you know with things like Box Office Mojo, there's statistically, and then I'd go, well, these films that made that did really well, what did they have in common? I was trying to look for a threat, mm. so I jumped around for a while, and 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 the 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 listener can go ahead and do some of that themselves just for their curiosity. But something that I thought did have some teeth. Uh, or some uh, some meat on the bone were films that we all sort of universally dismiss as being flops, but actually made a lot of money. And I think, especially based on what some of what Jeff said, they might have made a lot of their money out of the United States. Um, and and that's not to be uh, dismissed. Dismissed. So um, I just took uh, a few of my that I thought were possibly the more surprising because it's a, it was a pretty good list, but. Um, uh, I'm actually going to skip this one because it wasn't that big a film. But uh, real quickly, Hansel and Gretel. Does anyone, oh, yeah. does anyone remember? Like that movie came yeah. out like yeah. three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. After the first Avengers film, Jeremy Renner. We're all going to be in love with Jeremy Renner. That right. film came out. Didn't really do any business. Didn't really get good reviews. Uh, I didn't see it, so I can't tell you if it was any yeah, good. Yeah, I didn't see it. Anybody, you saw it? Yeah. yeah. Now, Jeremy Renner normally does good work, so I wouldn't have thought it was a bad film. Right. But uh, – but and, and it disappeared very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's an old saying in Hollywood, nobody sits down to make a bad movie. And so movies that don't perform, there's a lot of reasons yeah. for, for that. Uh, I remember when Buckaroo Banzai came out, it competed against E.T. And it was brilliant, but nobody saw it because yep. it was competing because E.T. sucked the air out of the uh, thing. So That was actually – I wanted to bring in so – when we talk about Guilty Pleasures was, was Buckaroo Banzai. Love, cause it's love a, that show. It's a very fun but very – not necessarily accessible film for everybody, but right. it's not anyway. It's a geek film. So Hansel and Gretel made two hundred and five million dollars, and since oh most God. of it appears to have taken place where there's snow and two people, it probably didn't cost anywhere near two hundred and five mm. million dollars. Um, but like I said, it, it's 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 sort of a punchline, really. I'm sure it's not the best film on uh, on Jeremy Renner's resume or Gemma Arterton. She's a a Bond girl, uh-huh. um, but two hundred and five million dollars, I'll take it. Well. It, yeah, we and we need to. Rem- uh, you mentioned it already, but a lot of that's foreign. Resi- foreign because I've I looked at some of these films and their box office was like eighty million in the United States and two hundred and fifty million overseas, and that's where yeah, a lot of exactly. these films are making a fortune. Yeah, and also a lot of films are being shaped specifically for that in mind. And and, and there's going to be uh, there's one actor that's in quite a few of the films that make a lot of money internationally, but aren't necessarily making a lot of money here. Matt Damon. No. Uh, Mark Wahlberg. He's in one of them, but mm. no. But international big box office draw, although has had a couple oh, of missteps. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Yeah, of course. Speaking of which, well, actually, no, let's come to, we'll, well, night and day, night and day. Tom Cruise, 
Cameron Diaz. It's actually a really fun film. I saw that. I saw it's it. It's very, very enjoyable. Yeah. It did not I, do well in the box office. I, I liked it. I did too. I know that they had a lot of time. They kicked around different names for it. They couldn't come up with a name that people were going to like and all of this. They really kind of, you know, fell over themselves like trying to get people to watch this film because, and it's a very fun film. Yeah. He, isn't that the one where he plays like a, like a, well, it's, it's like, is he a master spy right. or is he a or crazy person crazy, who right. thinks he's a master right. spy? And, uh, it's, it's very fun. You know, nobody really, uh, credits Tom Cruise for doing comedy, but he's really funny no, he in is. this. Well, risky and, business. And especially fun. because he's playing like, this could be if he's either crazy or it's a Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> and that's, and I, I really, I enjoy, I remember watching that film and being really surprised because right. it did have a, mm-hmm. it, it have a bit but, of a stink but, on it. But yeah, it did. It didn't, it was, it, the, the, never mind. I got $261 million. Wow. Good. I'll I'll take I'll take 10% of that. <laughs> uh another film that is uh sort of not not well regarded is uh The Last Airbender. Yeah. And Last Airbender, M Night Shyamalan, uh who at that point was sort of almost in movie jail and yeah. uh makes this movie and everyone's like, "Oh, M Night Shyamalan this." And oh, the movie's so terrible and it was it was lambasted for a lot of whitewashing. There's mm-hmm. very few Asian characters mm-hmm. in an Asian mm-hmm. story. Um but internationally, it connected with an audience that did not have, you know, M. Night Shyamalan fatigue or whatever, or didn't really, uh, wasn't necessarily surprised by whitewashing because that film made $320 million. Wow. You make anything for three, get $320 million, you're getting signed to make two, three, sure. part, part six, you know, uh, sure. maybe we can get the rock in it. But <laughs> that film is, is not well regarded, not well remembered. Uh, another film, uh, The Tourist, Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. Angelina Jolie. Yeah, I didn't see that. No. How can it miss? Mm. Well, that would be another episode. <laughs> but internationally, two hundred and seventy-eight million dollars. Wow. Johnny Depp opens a movie. Still, or at least at that point, still well, opened a movie. And Angelina, Angelina Jolie. Jolie. I don't think anybody. The, the commercials didn't make it look particularly exciting or gripping or anything mm. like that. Mm. But it did well internationally because those faces uh, can still open films. And that's what I've always heard. Um, even in B movies, you try to get the name. That people recognize, like Howie Long was a big yeah. name for a while, even though he, his career wasn't huge. You put his name on a movie yeah. and it opens overseas. That's right. And he wasn't particularly well known for movies. Right. But he was a recognizable name. You could put his name Absolutely. big on the box. Yeah. Okay. So now, probably the, uh, certainly in the modern era, the most uh, notorious flop, disaster, terrible, terrible movie, oh my goodness, would be Waterworld. I liked Waterworld. I enjoyed it. Waterworld made $264 million. Kevin Costner. In 1995 money. Wow. And that was That's a like, lot of money in 1995. It's like a half a billion dollars now, right? It, again, I take 10%. <laughs> uh, and again, an interesting fact, these, these movies... Waterworld did well internationally, and it's actually not a terrible film. It, it definitely came out behind the eight ball because they had a lot of problems with production. There was, well, it was a lot of strife on the too, set. Right? It was very expensive. Yeah, I don't think it was two hundred sixty-four million dollars expensive. It was. I can't remember the budget. It was like one hundred fifty million dollars. But, uh, but yeah, Kevin Costner, who at that time was the number one box office draw. A couple of the other films on that list uh, are Tom Cruise, who's very high, you know, internationally bankable. Johnny Depp, same thing. Um, and and, and I, I'm not really trying to. I was looking for some sort of inner truth, like what can we learn? Basically, if you've got a movie star, you've got a movie internationally, if not domestically. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's great. Um, I, I want to mention a couple things about the box office numbers too, just so everybody understands. Um, one of the things that always I always heard is a, bo- a movie has to earn back three times its budget. 
uh, or at least twice its budget. So a hundred million dollar film supposedly has to learn, earn back 300 million. And that's for a couple reasons. The, when, when a distributor gives a movie to a theater, the theater gives them basically half of the, their tickets back. So they're only making 50% of the box office. Plus P&A, which is print and advertising, which uh, isn't as big a deal as it used to be because, Toby, you worked in real film, right, when you started as an editor? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they used to have to actually physically – uh, and now they send out hard drives and they do it yeah. by satellite but, and stuff. But in truth, that was that was never a huge – Financial, like now it's really easy to be, to do it later. Uh-huh. That was more the thing. It's not that, it's not that the FedEx costs were really killing big No, but they had movies. to make, they actually had to make but copies, yeah, the, physical, the physical copies. Yeah. yeah, and that created time pressure. And it also created money. But P, some- P&A costs are still right up there yeah. with the budgets of the films. Oh yeah. yeah. But that's, and, that's, that's largely to do with advertising, uh, and where, and, well, you know, the, giving away as popcorn, much of the movies as Making they can. popcorn buckets that are branded and, uh, giving away all, you know, all these promotional things. Cause I yeah. do marketing for a couple of theaters and they're always getting these things from the, you know, the t-shirts, the posters, the, the keychains, the whatever. The other thing is, which I didn't realize is the foreign, residuals or the foreign money not residuals is not as big as domestic uh whereas a domestic market you make make uh, theater owners or um distributors make 50% maybe 54% 55% overseas they make less than 15 25% so sometimes so unless they're like disney disney will probably write its own deal so it, it, the numbers I, i'm so shocked at how much money these movies made uh also i, I think the dvd market has Disappeared for a lot of these things. And that used to be a big aftermarket, um, yeah. thing, right? So now it's all streaming. So they're not making money on physical DVDs anymore. But that also means they're not spending the money to physically yeah, manufacture. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's kind of a catch 22. We know that in that industry, if there's a way that they can, uh, make a nickel and only have to spend a penny, they're going to find it. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's why it kills me about, um, I mean, we don't want to get into it, but piracy. Where they they cry in the blues about piracy. There's a small percentage of piracy that occurs. Uh, most of most people buy legitimate. They yeah. you know they either have Amazon Prime or Netflix mm-hmm. or Hulu, and they're watching the movies legitimately through those through those media. So uh, there was a big big thing about uh, Cody and and uh, all that. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, I mean, Bill, this kind of pertains to software as well. You know, you made you made game cartridges. Pretty hard to knock those off. Although I got some Game Boy cartridges that are pretty vague in their origin but but like once once it became software where you didn't have to buy a cartridge or even get a box and you were just downloading it it made the cost of manufacture tiny but it made the uh you know what what do you call the opportunity for piracy go up a little bit you know yeah yeah, even at mattel even in that era we had uh i did the copy protection schemes for games like burger time you know i actually was writing all sorts of special code to prevent people from just making a duplicate of the disc Mm -hmm. Because yeah, but I had that hole puncher for the disc, and you could just punch <laughs> that thing, and you say, "Hey, free disc!" I had that. Sorry, I'll yeah, give you, I'll give you some money before I go home. Sorry about. <laughs> All right, but no, it's a real problem, and it's always been. And most of us in the software business just write that off as okay. Well, that was just part of the deal. You know, there's a certain loss that you get, but the question is, do you still make money? Nowadays, it's actually a lot harder because you've got server-based games, and anything that has a central server and anything that has a central authority for the authentication and the allowing of you to use the game makes it a lot less likely that you're going to have piracy because you can't pirate the fact that, you know, company X is not allowing you to access their server anymore.
All right, um, we're going to move into. Um, I want to. I want to do the question. Let's just do one question because we're running up. We're running long, which is great. Okay. Uh, but let's just do that question that that one student sent right. in. I had a couple here actually, but I do like this one. And okay, it's, it's, pick, pick one that you like. I got it. It's, okay. Now there's there's going to be a little bit of a story. This actually originated on our plot points. Uh, uh, one of our discussions on the plot points. Site or was uh, it on Facebook? On the Facebook page, yeah. And so I'll well, try wait, to get... it's plot points our class, not plot points the podcast. The cat, yeah. oh, the class, yeah. yeah the class. Sorry, but uh, but we're, we'll bring it into the to the uh, the podcast uh, arena for discussion. A little bit of backstory: um, the term propulsive transitions was used, and uh, well, honestly, I, I guess we really have to go back to the beginning of that. What is a propulsive transition? And uh, and why don't I know what a propulsive transition is? <laughs> because it's just a term. It's just a, uh, one of those terms that somebody came up with. Jeff is is, is over there giving – you have the same exact reaction that I had. It's like, okay, I get that you want to sell a book or I get that you want to be known as a guru. but Proprietary business, baby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but pro- all a propulsive transition is is just making sure that your damn scene ends properly – and propels you into another – it's like uh, people used to call them page turners, right? At the end of a chapter, if you can put the book down at the end of the chapter, you're you're not doing your job. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with film. Every scene should ask a question, answer a question, and, and continue uh, the other question. So if at the end of the scene – and I – this is probably the thing I mark most on my students' work is this is not a scene ending. This does not propel me. What was it? Propulsively. Propulsive transition. Yeah. This does not propulsively transition into the next moment. It At does this- sound like something you get if you drink dirty water. Yeah. <laughs> it's writer's diarrhea. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, but I mean, it, the, the point is, is it just a term? It just means, and it's, it's screenwriting 101. Uh, the, the art of screenwriting and the craft of screenwriting demand that you, because uh, here's the, here's my point about, uh, scripts. It's an artificial medium. It's not like nobody sits down and says, hmm, let me pull a script off the shelf and read that. I mean, they're not like books. They're not like where you're immersed in the moment. Typically, they're business tools, right? A producer takes them home. Uh, there may be 10 of them. He's got to do that and balance everything else or her. So they don't want to, they don't want to read. They don't like to read. They read too much, so much over there. I mean, they're forced to read these things. So giving them uh, any reason to turn your your to not turn the page is a bad thing. So every scene has to be solid. Every scene has to make them think I'm in the middle of an adventure that I don't want to put down. And when you get into you know students like to use montages, flashbacks, all this other stuff. Those are not propulsive uh, transition things. They 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 put you to freaking sleep. Write your damn story, right? Yeah, okay. Um, anyway, so that's, that's what I'm taking from the, the, the thing was a, a question or a quote that was posted on the, on the website for my class. And I just find it, I mean, Jeff, you've, you've had to have gone through this, right? With, uh, with some of your stuff with oh, people. I, I, I go through it all the time with, with, with all the terminology that people use for story structure and story development. Because everybody's got to, you know, slap it onto a, you know. Well, save the cat, right? Instead yeah, of, yeah, instead it, of it, kick, kick the dog, kiss the baby. Or save ride the, the alligator or whatever the <laughs> hell it is. You know, everybody's talking about the same basic conceptual things. Yeah. And they put proprietary language on it because they've got to pay the rent. So mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. No. I mean, hell, I do it too. I you, did it too in my book, you know. You brand it. But so I, in, in short, it's a, it's a term of art, but it's not really a, it's not a real thing or a, a no. specific, it's not a new development in no. screenwriting. No. 
There no. is no such thing. There's no such thing. Exactly. Story is story is story is story. Like, yeah. like Jeff has pointed out, what goes back to the cavemen. We may have danced those stories. We may have sung those stories. We may have grunted those stories. But a story is a story is a story. And I tell my students the first class, by the way, my classes are starting, uh, tomorrow. Well, you won't, this will be dropping after the classes. So you, you, you've already missed the first one. So it's, it's just too damn late yeah, to catch it, up. Forget it. forget it. Don't come to my classes. Live your life. Be happy. <laughs> if you want to find them, they're on the IVC's community, uh, education website. The, 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 the key is if, if you're a listener and if you're, you know, new to story development or storytelling in general, but you have a passion for writing, just go find, just, you got to kiss a lot of frogs. It's just the way it's going to be. You're going to kiss a lot of frogs before you find your prince. Right. And when you do, it will be somebody's system that resonates with you for some reason. And you don't have to answer the question, why does this work for me or doesn't? It doesn't matter. Or it'll be a bunch of, it'll or be a composite or, of a Or you're going to find your own hybrid. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I Which, tell people with, with my system, you know, it's like, I don't care if you do all my steps. I care less. You're going to turn it into your own thing anyway over time. Right. That's all that matters. So just go learn it. Just learn the conceptual ideas about story structure, and it will serve you well, whatever damn system you use. It's what it is, and and that's why I never tell students not to read somebody's book. No. When they ask me, I say, look, nobody can teach you to write. You're the only person that can do this. But the, But if you get one thing out of one book that makes sense to you, that's a great – that's great. So my motto, try everything, listen to everyone, follow no one. You yeah. are your own right. guru. All right. Well, uh, guys, I, w- I just want to before we – well, I'll do my act three and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Uh, but, Toby, where can our wonderful listeners find us, um, which uh, – Well, Mark, as I shuffle these, these papers yeah, for, this, I'll uh, help you for this spontaneous moment <laughs> uh, of uh, – Completely unintended self-promotion. Uh, please give us, whoops, I'll just keep hitting the table. Please give us a call at 919-SCRIPTS. That's 919-SC, well, if you need me to spell scripts, you need more help than we can give you. But uh, 919-SCRIPTS, uh, you can ask us a question. Uh, if it's particularly uh, insightful, we will uh, repeat it on the air as if we made it up ourselves. You can also go to plotpoints.com. That is the official website of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And there's a form there where you can ask your question and Mark or one of the many minions working for us uh, Mark will look at it and uh, correct your grammar <laughs> also we're, we're available on iTunes and uh, yes you can download the podcast on iTunes you can subscribe you can leave us a nice review you can leave us a nasty review but we'll be able to track it back to you Okay, so I'm going to do, this is Act 3, this is my take, and um, it was inspired by, uh, on I was on the way home from my sister's house and listening to uh, a, radio, a sports broadcast, uh, and thinking through what I wanted to say about script writing, it came to me that the same messages, and I'm <clears throat> sure that everybody on the, at this table can relate to this, keep overlaying themselves on my life in this segment. Uh, messages that I embrace and welcome. Uh, messages I believe in. Um, habits are important. Good habits and approach on how to write anything is necessary. A plan, as uh, Jeff has pointed out. Uh, I think you must do all the things you imagine, like learn and write and write and learn, and then rinse and repeat daily. It's that simple. But it's unfortunately a m- lot more complicated. Um, I can find a lot of parallels in any occupation for what I see in my career in the film business, especially in sports, which I constantly am amazed at the uh, inspirational stories in that in that uh, part of the world. 
Let me mention a legend to illustrate, but not an athlete. Um, I heard an interview on the Petros and Money Show this week by recently retired L.A. Kings announcer Bob Bob Miller. The Kings are the one of the hockey teams here in L.A. Miller, on January 13th, became the third person from the Kings to have a statue in the plaza outside Staples Center with Luke Robitaille and Wayne Gretzky. He will join former Lakers play-by-play announcer Chick Hearn as the only broadcasters to be honored there with that statue. Due to health reasons, um, Miller retired in 2017 after calling 3,351 Kings games. That's incredible. That's even more than Chick Hearn called. Uh, he told the story of how he became the Kings announcer of 44 years. Chick Hearn originally called him about the job because Jack Kent Cook had uh, asked him to find a hockey announcer. Uh, he said the Kings announcer was quitting and there was an opening, so uh, Chick Hearn called Miller and said he should apply. Miller sent his audition tape to the Kings and Jack Kent, Jack Kent Cook, who was also the owners of the, at the time of the Lakers, loved it, told Miller without a doubt he would be the next Kings announcer. Miller's journey began in communication studies at the University of Iowa. He covered the school's football and basketball games for the campus station. Then he would later get an announcing job for the football and hockey teams at the University of Madison, Wisconsin-Madison. Not a huge market, but certainly reasonable, but certainly not the L.A. Kings. So Miller hangs up the phone and starts to celebrate. I'm going to be the Kings announcer, he tells everyone. Perhaps he decides to buy that new car he's been thinking about or to invest in a risky stock. Maybe just splurge on dinner with his wife or buy her something. A few days later, Cook instead decides to hire San Francisco announcer Roy Story. You understand, I hope, the conversation may have gone. Story has a lot more experience in a larger market. Without trying to sound shattered, Millard says he does understand and throws all his new plans out the window. But a year later, Miller was indeed hired by the Kings. He said on the interview, on this interview by Petros and Money, that he never stopped sending out audition tapes as he continued to work hard at his small market gig. He had uh, he had to have been horribly disappointed and disillusioned by the near-missy experience, but that didn't dissuade him from continuing to pursue his dream while he worked whatever jobs he could. On the day he flew to L.A. to sign the contracts with the Kings, his wife called and said that the Pittsburgh uh, had also called and offered him the Penguins job. I think it was the Penguins. It might have been the Philly Flyers. The point is, here was Miller now being offered two major market jobs simultaneously because he had never stopped striving. He continued to believe in himself and his chosen path, no matter the odds or the setbacks. That attitude served him well for the next 44 years while he pursued. And he's still a young man, and he still could do it if it wasn't for health reasons. But it, when you think about all the owner or all the transitions he went through, it's really a tribute to this guy. Miller was honored by the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2000, inducted into the Los Angeles Kings Hall of Fame, into the Wisconsin Wisconsin Hockey Hall of Fame, and into the Southern California Sports Broadcasters Hall of Fame. The press box at Staples Center, the Kings home arena, is now named in his honor. Miller has also received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and a golden mic and hundreds of other awards for his exquisite work. 44 years of amazing moments. He may have been uncertain, angry at times, disillusioned, and fearful of his future, but he did not quit. He could not have seen five decades into the future of a Hall of Fame career, but it didn't matter. He knew one thing above all else. You cannot achieve your dreams unless you stay focused in them, continue to strive for them. I've lived Miller's story, though mine has not turned out quite as well yet. I've had a lot of successes. And I've been told on multiple occasions that my career is about to take an amazing turn, that I'm the next big thing on the yellow brick road. And that was true for a moment. 
Unfortunately for me, due to circumstances beyond my control and having nothing to do with me personally, I swear, or my skill set, I ended up about as well as Dorothy the first time she enters Emerald City. Back into that forest, Mark, face those flying monkeys. Certainly an apt metaphor for Hollywood. A lot of flying monkeys in Hollywood. In other words, I have not yet gotten the sort of acclaim and success that I was assured at times was coming, just like Miller. And that's all okay. I continue to write, to sell, to send out my work when I have the opportunity. I know my day will come. I firmly and without reservation believe it. And you must too. Along with the standard things to do you do to succeed in this business, the other thing you must do is never stop believing in yourself. If you want it, pursue it to the exclusion of almost everything else. You must burn with a hot blue flame that can melt your fears and uncertainties. You must take rejection and turn it into a positive lesson. You must absorb disrespect and disillusionment and allow it to mold your resolve. Remember, if you quit, you can't succeed. You can go sideways at times, I have, but you can always come back to that yellow brick road. You must always visualize Emerald City as your goal. In the famous words of the boss, Bruce Springsteen, from his song, No Surrender, you say you're tired and you just want to close your eyes and follow your dreams down. Well, we made a promise. We swore we'd always remember. No retreat, baby. No surrender. You don't want me to sing it, so I'm going to leave it at that. So just keep fighting those flying monkeys. Maybe someday you'll get a statue like Miller next to Chick Hearn, or at the very least, a career of which you can be proud. And remember, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So be inspired and do good work. So I'd like to thank, um, as always, Toby, my co-host, for uh, his uh, elucidating and uh, wonderfully charming um, material and and uh, personality. And Bill, uh, you're a you're a hero of mine. Uh, I don't know if you know that or not, but man, you make me you make me feel like there's there's always a future. And uh, Jeff, what a wonderful uh, contribution you've made. I think the the anatomy of a premise line is just really brilliant work. Um, and I know you're stepping away from that that kind of thing for a while to concentrate on your fiction, but I hope you get back to it pretty quickly. So I won't. Oh. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm, right. I'm really pulling away from all that. I, okay. I just don't want to be in that world. Well, uh, you know, never say never. Oh, I'm, I'm going to keep teaching. I'm going to keep doing. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know what I'm saying? I know. I get it. Yeah, I okay. Just, I just. Yeah. Well, you're you're a wonderful writer. I, I've only read thirteen minutes um, uh, a while a little while ago, but I loved it. <laughs> well, anyway, Mary Claire, uh, we missed you. Uh, hurry back. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Um, have uh, a great time of it. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Keep at it. Keep doing it. Keep trying. Keep striving. It's uh, it's within your reach, if not your grasp. So, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well said. Thanks. Good, good words. Thank you.